You're listening to the Grassroots Church Podcast. We're a Jesus-centered community in Thunder Bay, Ontario. You can learn how to participate more by going to our website at grassroots.church. Uh, well, welcome um, to all those who are maybe visiting and uh, to our church family uh, who come regularly. Thank you for being here this morning. Um, <clears throat> we are in week two of what's turning out to be a three-week series because I realized that Advent is just around the corner. So I was like, well, this, this series is going to get shorter than I thought. Um, but Advent's just around the corner, and so we are doing uh, kind of a three-week series on why do we church? And it's a series on recovering the reasons for <clears throat> why uh, we should get together on a weekly basis at the very least uh, as a community of Jesus followers and last week we began by looking at reasons why we don't meet. What are some of those reasons? Some of them are very legitimate reasons. And I had posted on Facebook um, uh, just basically asking, what are some of the reasons that you folks have observed, either in your own life, some of the reasons you've thought, uh, or people maybe have spoken to you? And I appreciate the feedback and, and the conversation that kind of took place on, on our, in our Facebook group. And by the way, if you are um, a member of Grassroots Church or you're interested in this community and you're wondering, like, how do I connect with the community in a more sort of ongoing basis, our Facebook group is a great place for that. Um, there's lots of good reasons to do that. We share things that, you know, we might be wanting to give away or sell or whatever, kind of there before we go onto Facebook Marketplace often. So you get first dibs on things. That's great. But also just conversations like this take place there as well. And some of the things that were shared, people no longer believe. Or maybe they didn't believe at all to begin with. Uh, Church seems irrelevant, which is, um, yeah, something we have to work on, isn't it? Uh, There's just been too much hurt. Maybe you've been hurt in church And it's just a lot easier to uh, walk away from it than to confront it and to deal with it. Or maybe some of those people that, or the people or the church that that hurt you isn't willing to see that, uh, that hurt that's been caused. And so it's just, it's easier to avoid it. And then the last one, mental health. Uh, I like that. This is Shannon. And she said, church can be too peoply. And I appreciate that. Church can be too peoply, and if you're an introvert in particular, or if you're just struggling with uh, mental health sometimes, yeah, I don't know, you look around, there's people here. Um, and so that, those, are, those are fair. And <clears throat> this morning and next week, we want to make a case for, in, despite all of these reasons, some of which are very legitimate, despite all of these reasons, we want to make a case for why going to church is still worthwhile. Um, That there remain a few very good reasons, especially for followers of Jesus, to say, you know what? In spite of all of these things, I'm going to make this a part of the rhythms of my life again. You know, maybe I've stepped aside from going to church for a couple of years Maybe COVID caused that, whatever. I kind of fell out of a rhythm of that. And you know what? Now it's time for me to like say, hey, this is part of who I am. This is important to me. And I want to resume that rhythm in my life again. And so that's it. That, that's the intention of these next two Sundays. It's not to guilt you into coming to church. Um, it's not to make you feel less valued if you say, you know what? Church isn't for me. 
Uh, it's not to say that God loves you more if you go to church, or God loves you less, or your, the fellows, fellow uh, believers in this community will love you less or accept you less if you say, church is not for me right now. That's none of that. Um, but just to share some reasons that might compel us to actively participate in the body of Christ in a weekly manner, at the very least. Let's think about our church experience for just a second. If you wanted to sing some solid worship music, well, you don't need to come here on Sunday morning to do that. In fact, this past week, I, uh, along with the help of my wife, we created a a Spotify playlist of grassroots Sunday morning songs. So all the music that we sing here on Sunday mornings, if you point your camera to that, you can now subscribe to that and listen to, I think, hours upon uh, There's several hours, like three or four hours of music that we sing here on Sunday mornings. It's pretty handy, isn't it? Um, and if you were looking for some solid teaching and you needed to be challenged more in your faith, and you want to understand what Bible passages meant, I could give you five or ten podcasts off the top of my head of preachers, of speakers, of pastors, who are far more articulate than I am, who are way better at uh, engaging with you, engaging with the text, and communicating truths, spiritual truths to you much better than I can. And if you were looking for Sunday school programming for your child, well, I can sit beside you on a computer and I can point you to YouTube, where there are an infinite amount of free resources that will help your child become engaged with the story of God. And I can help you Google where you can find more resources that you can just use in the comfort of your own home. And if you were remember, interested in remembering Jesus' death and resurrection, which I think is an integral part of our gatherings weekly, um, well, I would point you to Bennett's Bakery. And they make a mean, fresh loaf of bread every morning. And it's warm, and it's fresh, and it's squishy, and it's just a really lovely loaf of bread that you could use. And since you're doing this on your own, you could actually pour yourself a glass of red and dip that bread into the wine at your own table. And remember your Lord's death. What else is there? Stacking chairs. That's a pretty important part. I can't really help you with that. You'd have to come to church for that part. But the fact that each of these components of the church experience can be experienced independently of our Sunday morning gatherings should cause us all to pause and ask the question, why do I go to church anyway? Because if this is all that church is, then why wouldn't we be promoting this kind of activity as a replacement for actually gathering together each week? It's far more convenient, right? Um, You can do this on your schedule. If you don't like a song that comes up on the Spotify list, you can just say, skip, go to the next one. If you don't like um, what a particular pastor or, or podcast is saying to you, well, here's five other ones you can listen to. Pretty easy. Um, and maybe some of you are like saying, hmm, that's actually an interesting point, Steve. Maybe we should consider this. 
Now, before you uh, check out and subscribe to what I call the Saint Solo, the Church of the Introvert, it's the name I came up with, maybe it doesn't land, let me remind you that this kind of church service, where you do all of these activities individually, independently of the larger body, uh, lacks one important ingredient, other people, right? Other people. And I want to ask, what if we looked at the church experience, this thing that we're doing right now, not primarily as a place of gathering to sing songs or learning about the Bible or teaching or whatever, but primarily as a means of interacting with one another. And it doesn't just stop there, because if it's just interacting with other people, well, you, you do that Monday to Friday every day at your work. You're interacting with other people all the time. You do that at your weekly cornhole league that you're a part of, right? You do that uh, in the aisles of the grocery store while you're shopping. Interacting with other people is not enough. It's more specific than that. It's interacting with other people who share a fundamentally different worldview than the rest of the world. A worldview that insists Jesus is at the center of reality, not us. Amen? And so this is the framework that we gather. This is the reason we gather here as a church, not just to interact with people, but to interact with people who subscribe to this. And if this is the framework, there is within that framework a particular ethic, a set of convictions, a way of living that brings us together, that informs how we ought to live. And one way we might frame that is by saying we are a community who marches to a different drumbeat, right? Um, one drum who lives by a different governing or guiding principle or ethic. Because when we contrast the church with the world, we see um, an ethic that says you need to, uh, you know, power makes right, bite and devour, conquer, be conquered, get ahead at all costs. It's this ethic that implicitly seems to govern the world, governs our society. Everybody is pretty much on their own most of the time. There is limited support if you fall to help you up. Um, if you, it, there, you know, communal life and community building is sacrificed at the altar of individual power pursuit, of wealth gaining, of ladder climbing. The thing that matters most in this world is you. You are at the center of the universe. Right? And this is familiar language to us. We get taught this from our school all the way up. Our society is so, sort of just assumes this ethic that you are of the most importance. Uh, it is an ethic that declares that everything is about you and your safety, your priority, your comfort should come before everyone else's. And if you have time to care for others, then great. But if not, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it too much. Just make sure that you are safe. Ron and I have been reading a book lately uh, by Philip Yancey. It's an older one of his called Rumors of Another World. Has anyone read Rumors of Another World? 
It's maybe one of his, you have, good. Yeah, it's like from 2003, which doesn't seem that long ago for some of us, but for others, it sounds like a lifetime ago. Anyway, um, it's, uh, so Rumors of Another World, and he shares this story in the, uh, in the book about um, an author, uh, it's taken out of um, a memoir written by Langdon Gilkey, and his name, uh, it's called Shantung Compound. And it's an account of Gilkey sharing a prison camp during World War II with other foreigners during uh, Japan's occupation of China. And he says that food supplies were so low in this camp that every prisoner uh, was allowed or was able to basically get about 1,200 calories of food a day, which, you know, you need 2,000 a day. And so they were not getting sufficient calories a day. They were, uh, what was it, six slices of bread, they had boiled water, and a bowl of stew. That's all they were uh, able to have. And, and so these prisoners dreamt of nothing more than just eating lots of food all the time, having full nourishment. Uh, and one day, this shipment of 200 parcels came in from the American Red Cross. There were 200 American prisoners. There was one for each American prisoner. Pretty handy. And so these American prisoners felt that they had struck gold. Each parcel contained a pound of powdered milk, four tins of butter, three cans of Spam, a pound of cheese, some chocolate, some sugar, and a bunch of other goodies. And then, in addition, there's a bunch of clothing as well. And so the Americans used that, and then they kind of distributed all the excess clothing and whatever extra food maybe they had to the rest of the camp. And things were going pretty good for a while. And then, six months later, the goods from the parcels had kind of all dried up, um, it, winter had set in, it was really cold, and morale had sort of hit an all-time low in the camp. Christmas had just passed, and the American Red Cross sends, get this, 1,550 parcels to this camp. Gilkey writes, it was as though everyone were living through every Christmas Eve of his lifetime all rolled into one. Everyone is so excited about this incredible delivery, right? There was enough parcels for every person in that camp with 200 to spare. But the next morning, to their dismay, they read a notice that no parcels would be distributed. Because get this, a small group of, of Americans, now nothing against Americans, that's not the point, we all... Many of us might do this in this situation. But a small group of Americans had decided that because the American Red Cross had sent these packages to the camp, that they were the ones entitled to the packages. No one else. In other words, they demanded seven and a half parcels for each American with none to spare for the others. Disgusted, the commandant appealed to Tokyo for a decision, and the camp waited for 10 days with this mountain of parcels sitting there untouched. The Americans faced resentment and hostility from other prisoners, and this is what Gilkey writes. He said, it was the same story all over, a community where everyone had long forgotten whether a man was American or British, white, Negro, Jew, Parsi, or Indian, had suddenly disintegrated into a brawling, bitterly divided collection of hostile national groups. Ironically, our wondrous Christmas gift had brought in its wake the exact opposite of peace on earth. 
the massive mounds of life-giving parcels lay inert in the center of the camp, while gusts of human conflict and ill will swirled tumultuously around them. For the first time, I felt fundamentally humiliated at being an American. This ethic of entitlement, of self-centeredness, of self-preservation, it always leads to hostility. It always leads to conflict, to ill will, to division, to brokenness. That is the way that the world operates. And you look around, and it doesn't take much to see that substantiated, to see that truth. But then in the midst of all that, this weird community of Jesus followers comes along, and they insist that there is a different way of living that subverts that ethic of selfishness. The drum that we march to sounds a lot less like preserving me and mine, and a lot more like ensuring you and yours are going to make it, are going to be okay. It's an ethic that fundamentally sets the self aside for the sake of the other. That's the Jesus ethic. That's the ethic that should underscore every Christian community. The word that describes this ethic in the New Testament is the Greek word, I don't know how to pronounce it, alalon. It sounds like all alone. But actually, it means the opposite of all alone. All alone. This word is used a hundred times in the New Testament. And the translation of this word is one another. This is it. Listen to this. Submit to one another. Ephesians 5. Forgive one another. Encourage one another. Motivate one another. Restore one another. Care for one another. Accept one another. Bear with one another. Carry one another's burdens. Be hospitable to one another. And it goes on and on and on. In every page of the New Testament, especially the epistles, do we see this one anothering. It is a major theme. I would almost say that it is the most important or the most consistent theme in the New Testament. Just one passage here, Hebrews 10, and we looked at this last week as well, but let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. We looked at this passage last week, and I kind of handpicked it because it's one of a handful of passages in Scripture that talk about um, the intentionality of gathering together as Christians. And here we see what Christian gathering should look like, specifically. It should look like motivating one another to acts of, good lo- uh, good, to acts of love and good work. It should look like encouraging one another. This is not obviously an exhaustive list, but it's clearly an indication that church, it's much more than singing five songs and listening to a sermon and stacking chairs, right? Church is much more than that. And a few weeks back, we looked and we were studying Galatians, and we, we kind of camped on this verse for a little bit. Galatians 5, 6, it says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself 
through love. I love that phrase, faith expressing itself through love. And I think what Paul means when he says faith expressing itself through love is this sort of reference to all of these one another examples. You want to know what faith expressing itself through love looks like, he'd say to us today? It looks like accepting one another in your community despite different convictions of how you are to parent. Despite disagreements on how people spend their money, you accept one another. He would say, faith expressing itself looks like meeting with a community member who's going through a separation after 15 years of marriage and carrying their burden with them. It would say, faith expressing itself through love looks like gathering a group of people on a Saturday and chopping wood for some friends who are in need, right? It would look like stacking chairs at the end of a service so that the pastor doesn't have to do it after. It would look like something as simple as just sending a text of encouragement to someone in this community, who you, you notice in church that afternoon or that morning that, man, they look like they're going through a hard time. Maybe it was a parenting, maybe it was like a blow-up before church, maybe, uh, who knows what it was, but it's just sending them a curse and saying, hey, I'm here if you want to go for coffee. Uh, you got this. You know, encouraging, motivating, carrying each other's burdens. All of these one another's is what faith expressing itself in love what it looks like. And that's what Paul would tell us today. And, and this sort of one anothering, you, we, we could say that this is the governing ethic of Christian community, or it should be. Uh, because we get this ethic, we get these sort of marching orders from Jesus himself. He says this, this sort of all-encompassing statement. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. And you can add, just as I have, just as Christ has done to each one of those one another's. You could say, I'm going to go back here, submit to one another just as I submitted to you. Just as Christ submitted to us. Forgive one another just as I forgave you. And so forth, right? So Jesus gives us these instructions. He models it for us. And he says, this is what Christian community should look like. All of this, oh, further, further, oh boy. Uh, All of this is faith expressing itself in love. It's at the heart of being a follower of Jesus. And it's at the heart of what Christian community should seek to be doing. Now, we're painting a somewhat idyllic picture of Christian community. But if you've been a part of a church for any length of time, you'll know that we don't often measure up to this, right? Um, in fact, the church, for all of its ideals with one another, ethic of loving one, of what love should look like toward one another, maybe more often than not, we miss this. And so what do you do with that reality? Because there's a world out there that's like, everything is messed up. Everyone's dog-eat-dog world, blah, blah, blah. And then I come inside this church and I see this, I'm supposed to be seeing this selfless love, this others-oriented ethic, this one-anothering toward each other. And often I don't see that. How do we compel someone to become a part of a community that confesses to pushing against the self-centered dog-eat-dog ethic of the world but so often fails to accomplish that? That's a complicated answer. 
But I think it begins by acknowledging this, right? Um, Written into the fabric of what it means to one another to follow Jesus is the act of confession, to acknowledge that we don't get this right often. In fact, James talks about confessing. He says, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Again, more one anothering. It's almost as if Jesus was like, I know you're not going to do this loving one another thing through selflessness very well. It's going to be a struggle. So let's ensure that we have a means of acknowledging this from right off the top so that we can reset, we can regroup, and we can try again. Confess your failed attempts at one anothering well. Acknowledge your shortcomings. Be vulnerable. Accept that you are not perfect. You're not going to get it right each time. Not as individuals and not as a community. So I think by beginning there, we set aside any pretenses or facades that we are any better than the rest of the world. We have our act together any more than anyone else. We don't. We fail over and over again. Let's start by asserting we often get selfless love wrong. But within the world, there isn't really any means of accountability that would say you need to change, that would spur you on to transformation. That doesn't exist in the world. In fact, the dog-eat-dog sort of me as a center of the universe ethic, that's almost celebrated in the world, isn't it? Right? Like if we see that, uh, if the world sees that uh, behavior, um, they say, hey, good for you. And then we dump accolades upon them. We give them more money, you know, because it shows toughness, perseverance, all the uh, fortitude, rah, rah, rah. I got I conquered and I won and that's good. And so we almost celebrate that in the world. The church does not, should not. The ethic that defines us as a Christ-centered Jesus communities is a form of accountability in and of itself. Because within this paradigm, friends, there is a self-correcting mechanism. And that self-correcting mechanism that we can measure up our behavior, our actions toward one another against, are the very teachings of Jesus. The way of Jesus himself that we read about in scriptures, that we hear, that we learn about, that encourages and instills us, it gets us on the path toward living that selfless love kind of way. And the rest of the world can't appeal to that. Nor would we expect them to, and nor would they want to. So yeah, we fail to live this. We confess our failures, and then we rise up. We try again, because the way of love that we submit to beckons us again and again to do so. And each time, we recognize that it is underscored with grace. Incredible grace. Because the thing about Christian community, and by that I mean Jesus-centered community, fully living out its calling to be others-oriented, the thing about it, at least um, as I've observed, and maybe you've seen this too, is that it can be really, really hard to be a self-centered, entitled punk when the people closest to you are so dang good about one anothering well. So when we ask the question, what is the benefit of going to church? The answer is that we're changed when we go to church. We begin to experience transformation from selfishness to selflessness. 
and this is how. And I'm not saying this is guaranteed. I'm not saying that when you attend church, you're suddenly a better person who all of a sudden thinks less of themselves, more of others. Um, there are all sorts of variables that go into each and every one of our character developments and who we become. But what I'm saying is that we are all, when we are immersed in a community guided by an other-centered ethic that elevates our neighbor over ourself, that looks more and more like Jesus, that the odds are in our favor that we will, over time, become less selfish and more others-focused and others-minded. That's what happens to followers of Jesus. That's how transformation begins. When you are immersed around other people who are intentional about one anothering, submitting, forgiving, confessing, carrying each other's burdens, all of those things, when we do that and we make it a habit and a practice in our life, chances are you will start to become less selfish as well. And I will become less selfish as well. It happens all the time. Maybe it's osmosis. Maybe it's just by, prox- by proximity to one another. Maybe it's the Spirit of God at work in that. I'm not sure how it happens, but it does. Remember Zacchaeus? Not Caleb's little brother. I'm talking about Zacchaeus in Luke 19. It, it happened to him. Here was this selfish me-centered, clamored-to-the-top tax collector who had no qualms with cheating others if it meant that he could get ahead. Right? This is, sort of, this is, you know, this is all outlined in Luke 19. And, and then he encounters Jesus' subversive ethic of selfless love. Jesus extends a hand to him and invites himself over for lunch, but that act was so subversive because here is Zacchaeus who is despised and discarded by everyone around him in his own world, and Jesus bends down or reaches up and says, hey, I'm coming over to lunch for lunch today. That act creates a transformation in the person of Zacchaeus because who on earth would do that? And then the selfish Zacchaeus becomes incredibly selfless. He gives away everything that he had uh, taken from his fellow man. And then, what is it, seven times more he gives back? His life becomes others-oriented through an encounter with Jesus. And then the world of influence that he has is further impacted for good. And it happened to me. Or rather, it's happening to me. Uh, 20 years, 19 years ago when I got married, I was a pretty selfish guy. I'm still fairly selfish, but I was a lot more selfish. And you can ask Rhonda, um, there was a lot of work that was required of me. And I imagine many of us in this room would, would share the same story, the same kind of trajectory. Um, had I not been a part of intentional Christian community in which I was surrounded by people who one anothered me, really well, had I not done that, I think it's safe to say my marriage today would probably be in shambles because who I was at the beginning 20 years ago is not who I am today. And it's, yeah, there's a lot of variables at play there, but a big one is the fact that I was a part of a Christian community who showed me, who demonstrated in their own marriages what selfless love looked like. What's submitting to one another look like? What carrying each other's burdens look like? And then I was like, huh, that's really beautiful. That's really appealing. 
And over time, not overnight, but over time, I'd like to think that in my relationship with Rhonda, I became less and less me-centered and more and more other-centered, more her-centered in that sense. Um, in my mind, this is one of the main reasons that we should attend church. Because surrounding ourselves with people in pursuit of becoming like Jesus changes us to become more like Jesus. And the world needs more Jesus. Amen? When you look around at the hyper-individualism of our society, you see the brokenness that ensues from selfish, entitled, you know, me-first thinking, an ethic that assumes that the triumph of the self is the most important goal, and you see how pervasive and yet how ugly and harmful that ethic is in our world, how many marriages have called it quits because of selfishness, how many relationships with children, with friends, have divided, have separated because of an unwillingness to carry each other's burdens or to, to, to offer forgiveness, to repent, to resist the one anothering with another human. Aren't you glad there is a people intent on subverting that ethic, on reversing that? Who's convinced that there's a better way? This ethic of other-centered love, captured by the term one another, it pushes against that doggy um, dog world that we all know so well, that we experience outside of church community. It pushes against that hyper-individualism of our society that boldly declares, and it boldly declares, there is a more hopeful way that we can live. So this morning, as we begin to address this question about why we go to church, we start by recognizing that church is so much more than just a few songs and a sermon and stacking chairs. Church is first and foremost a community of Jesus-centered people who love one another as Jesus loved us, who practice one anothering with one another, proclaiming to a world stuck in self-serve mode that there is a better way. Amen? Amen. And this is what the New Testament lays out for us as this new creation community. This is the... This is the model for how we ought to live. And again, we don't always do that. But we start by confessing our failure to do that, and then we accept grace, and we move on and try again. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are grateful that we have Christian community in this room, that we have often, over and over again, practiced what one another uh, what one another even looks like, that faith expressed through love, is all this whole list of things that we read about in the New Testament. Uh, Lord, we confess that we fail at doing that. We confess that we have missed the mark way too many times in how we are to show selfless love to one another. Um, would your spirit work through this community, work through us as individuals to help us to be more intentional about living that other-centered ethic? Just as 
Jesus laid down his life for us, showed us what submitting to one another could look like. Help us to do that in a way that appeals to the world, in a way that brings hope to the world, in a way that is even a beacon of light to the world, that is just caught up in a me-first mentality. Help us to demonstrate a better, more hopeful way. Thank you for this community this morning. Thank you that we have one another. And thank you for grace. Grace that you've extended to us and grace that we can have with one another. Recognizing our proclivities, our tendencies toward selfishness. Shape us. Sharpen us. Help us to look more like Jesus. Amen. I invite the band up. Uh, so we're going to head into communion this morning. Uh, again, a very important part of our gathering as followers of Jesus, as we recognize the center of our faith being the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I thought I'd read again this poem that I read a few weeks back. Um, poem or just sort of a, not really a poem, I guess. But um, anyway, I invite everyone to stand. And feel free to close your eyes as I read this to us this morning. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. All who come to me shall not hunger, and all who believe in me shall not thirst. With Christians around the world and throughout the centuries, we gather around these two symbols, bread and wine, these simple elements that speak of nourishment and transformation. God, we thank you that you are as close to us as breath, that your love is constant and unfailing. We thank you for all that sustains life, and especially for Jesus Christ, who teaches us how to live out an ethic of justice and peace. And I would add an ethic of others-centered love. And for the promise of transformation made manifest in his life, death, and his resurrection. We ask you this morning to bless this bread and this cup, through this meal, make us the body of Christ, that we may join with you in promoting the well-being of all creation. Amen.